what kind of lifestyle do you want to have? Because at the end of the day, you're going to be waking up and spending 8, 10, 12, 15 hours, whatever, doing what it is that you aspire to do. So what kind of lifestyle do you want? What, how do you want to wake up? How do you want to go to bed? What do you want to be doing in between? In a very real sense, not just, you know, I want to practice therapy, but what does it mean? Lawrence Calogriades is a psychotherapist and clinical researcher based in Limassol, Cyprus. You can find him online at Calogriades. He believes that everyone stands to benefit from talk therapy. Things are always more complex than they seem. By guiding from that perspective, his clients discover that things aren't black and white and that they have more options than they initially imagined. He finds peace by listening to heavy music, lifting heavy objects, and reading heavy, leather-bound books. You're listening to This Guy's Legit. Lawrence, thank you for making time to chat with me all the way from Cyprus. Thank you very much, Rachel, for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. So it's the end of your work day and the beginning of mine, and I, I want to start by hearing sort of how you've spent your day. Uh, yeah, well, my day today was a bit unusual. I had to attend the National Guard because that's something that's expected from us here. Um, so I spent most of the day in the mud at a shooting range, and then I made my, my way home eventually, and I had some last-minute sessions that came up. And then I had the, the pleasure to come over here and record with you. So tell me more about being in the National Guard. That's, you know, every every person or every <clears throat> man of a certain age. How does that work in Cyprus? Uh, yeah, every man in Cyprus is expected to, um, let's say, attend the National Guard in a certain capacity. It used to be two years, which is what I did. Now it's been dialed down to 13 months and after you finish that, which is usually around the age of, let's say, 19, 20, um, you're expected to show up in the reserves for, you know, three, four, five days a year. And today was one of them. Okay. Mm. And so how did that work with, with coming over to the States to attend college? Yeah, well, that <laughs> interesting question because... The way it's done, or the way I did it anyway, um, I finished up with high school and then went straight to the military. And before even beginning that, I sent my applications to the universities I wanted to attend, to attend in the U.S. And I got an okay, but that was for two years in the future. So I knew by the end of, let's say six months in of my two-year service where I was going to end up in two years time and then I just had to uh, you know kind of make my way through my military service and I have to admit shifting things from being in the military at least the way that we do it over here to attending university in the United States was a huge difference huge change in my life and it's a change that I've done uh a number of times, actually, I have to admit, come to think of it now. How would you describe that change? Like, are there are there some sort of stark differences that you can illustrate? Um, yeah, I 
distinctly remember my first exam in uh, at San Diego State University, the first exam in the first semester, and I was thinking, man, I haven't done this in over two and a half years. I don't remember how to do this. And I kind of had to remember or retrain myself to towards academic thinking, let's say, let's put it that way. And um, actually, it was a big milestone for me because I realized that, okay, I can do this. And mm, mm-hmm. it was one of those moments where I thought, oh, okay, I can, I can, I can crush this if I want to. And did you, did you do San Diego State in four years? No, uh, I did it in three and a half, three and uh-huh, a half years. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then did you move immediately back to Cyprus or did you get a job? Did you stay? What did yeah. You do after college? Well, okay. <laughs> I, taking you back. Taking me back. Yeah, taking me back to some big decisions. Um, well, I graduated early, and because I was not legally allowed to have any kind of income, it didn't really make any sense for me to, to stay in the U.S. economically anyway. Of course, I wanted to stay as long as possible uh, as an intern and this and that, but economically it wasn't viable. So I made my way back to Cyprus and immediately began sending out applications and this and that. Um, and, well, that was another lesson I learned, you know. Sometimes it pays to keep on doing what you were doing. Do it well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. shifting everything to coming back to Cyprus and then trying to get my, you know, my foot back in the door didn't work out the way I expected it to, but, uh, you know, it opened up other doorways. I continued my education in Europe, uh, in different parts of Europe anyway. Um, but unfortunately that was an abrupt end to my academic endeavors in the U S. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about how you were able to grow through disappointment. So I know that after you finished your undergrad, you were planning to continue through and getting to get a PhD. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. My young mind wanted this very much. (laughs) And what did you what did you want to study? What did you what were you sort of hoping to do and hoping to be? Well, that's the thing that that was, I think, the big um, the big hurdle for me to cross because it was not exactly clear to me what I wanted to do at the time and hence uh, ever since I've been dabbling in many different things which ultimately enriched my my viewpoint on everything not just psychology but uh, at that point in time I was 20 something years old and knew that I wanted to continue my studies in psychology but I did not really have a concrete idea on what and how I just had a bunch of great in my mind uh, research proposals but I did not have a firm grasp of how the academic system works you know to to put it in a raw way kind of the business side of things like how how do you sell a business proposal how do you get your foot in the door in the programs that you want and things like that because the competition is is massive and I was on the other side of the planet and Ultimately, that was another massive lesson for me that, you know, you got to do your homework and ultimately you got to know what to do your homework 
on. So here I am, maybe uh, over a decade later, <laughs> finally doing what I decided I wanted to do when I was 15. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so as a child, you, you thought that you wanted to become a psychotherapist. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how to formulate that at the time, but definitely I spent a lot of my energy reading material and imagining that I would end up being that kind of, uh, psychologist, psychotherapist, um, However, when I went and studied in the United States, I got a very different um, presentation of where things are in the field. And I was so fascinated by all the research in cognitive psychology and neuroscience that uh, I branched off to that. And I have to say, uh, like I mentioned before, it enriched my understanding of things tremendously, tremendously. Absolutely. Yeah. I would imagine. I would mm. imagine. So when you were a child, mm -hmm. did you have, did you work? Did you have jobs or, um, did you not work until after your service? Uh, I had the odd job, like, um, I have fond memories of working in a record store and blasting metal through the speakers and the owner approving and, you know, just good things like that. But <laughs> no, nothing, nothing in my, my current field of any sort. Sure, sure. Yeah. But but little jobs here and there. And I'm, I'm curious, yeah, 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 yeah. did you, you know, when you when you are, you know, practicing and you have a you have a patient and you're having your conversations, do you ever draw on your own? I mean, I'm, you probably don't talk about your own childhood, but do you ever draw on those experiences from mm -hmm. way back when, like maybe with pa like how you're able to be patient or how you're able to be like a good listener, like did, did you cultivate any of those skills earlier on in your life or did you develop them all in your educational process? Yeah, you've definitely touched on something there, Rachel, because I think uh, the more time goes on, the more I realize that I ended up uh, practicing psychotherapy and being fascinated by it because exactly that. Uh, I remember as a child being an avid reader and I was one of those kids that would, I, I come from a, a, let's say, multicultural background. So I have two very different uh, sides of my family. One is very Greek Cypriot. The other is very English. And Cyprus used to be a British colony. So one side of the family is like down with the British. And the other side is, yeah, you know, we had an empire and this and that. And I, I learned to be that kid that would sit down and listen carefully to each side and try and understand what it was like for them subjectively to live through life as being, I'm Greek Cypriot and this is what I believe. I am mm. English and this is what I believe. And I never thought the question of who is right or who is wrong, it was just realizing the difference and that they can both be right they can both be valid points of view and this is something that comes up every single minute in psychotherapy just trying to relate to other people and connect and truly try and understand as much as possible try and communicate and what is your approach in your sessions do you do you ask a lot of questions do you sort of like have have a way that you approach 
everything um, and it's the same way or, or do you sort of wait for them to speak first? How do you I'm how a very chatty know? guy. <laughs> I, I don't shut up. Maybe <laughs> it seems to work fine, but um, I, I ask a lot of questions. Actually, I think this is the interesting thing about uh, what I consider to be this modern approach to psychotherapy: is that the therapist is not the person with the answers. The therapist is the person with the right questions. The client is the one with the answers and the solutions. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, I spend a lot of time formulating questions that will feed into something that my clients will take away with them. And um, in the hours in between, because, you know, a session can be, you know, just 50 minutes and, okay, it might generate some stimulating questions in, in someone's mind during those 50 minutes, but... Truth be told, the, the real work is what people do at home in the hours in between. And if they leave with some stimulating questions, then, you know, who knows? Things might blossom into specific answers or, or the, the vague idea that at the very least there is more to a topic or an issue than just ABC. It can be the entire alphabet. But when people come through the door initially, they look at things and they say, well, I have this option and this option and nothing else. And the goal is to ask as many questions as possible so that it becomes obvious that there's A, there's A2, A3, there's B, there's C, D, E, and so on and so forth. Mm. I think that's super interesting because we, we often do... I don't know about you, but over here in the States, you know, there's a lot of this is right. This that is wrong. Mm. Black, white, um, you know, it, you know, there it's only now that I'm mean, even with gender, you know, like that there's now a non-binary option, right. um, you know, and, and there was before, but people didn't talk about it. And so I think it's very interesting that your job sort of hinges on finding those gray areas and those in-between areas so that people can take themselves out of this sort of binary right-wrong approach and understand that there's a lot of choice to be had. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I think um, the, I was going to say, let's say Western thinking, but truth be told, the, the way that the entire planet looks at things right now is um, you know, a product of what seems to work and that's the positivist approach to the world let's approach things scientifically with hypotheses that we can prove or disprove and this and that which is a great method it, it works perfectly um, but as I learned through or as I came to realize I should say through you know studying neuroscience and this and that that actually human experience is a completely subjective thing if we approach it objectively uh, and then we're going to miss out on a lot and i think when we look at things subjectively from the perspective of each person then uh, it becomes very difficult to sort of reduce things down to right or wrong or a and b it's it's much more complicated than that yeah yeah, yeah. 
So when you, so I want to talk a little bit about the business side of things. Yeah. So when you, when you came back home mm-hmm. after school and you were making your applications to go get your PhD and it wasn't, it wasn't happening, it wasn't working out for you. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you get a job at that point or were you sort of hoping that everything was just going to work out? Uh, well, because I, I finished in three and a half years as opposed to four, I had the space of, I had let's say, from January until September when the new academic year was going to begin, um, just open to possibilities. So when I came back to Cyprus on that occasion, because there were more, on that occasion, I began a series of internships in the public health system. So I spent a lot of hours in the some psychiatric wards and hospitals and this and that and some rehabilitation clinics. And... I I got the first taste of what it would be like to work um, either in a clinical capacity or as a psychotherapist. And I, um, you know, the, the nature of the beast is you don't get paid for this kind of work, but it was very valuable to me in the end. I might not have been paid, but it made a lot of sense. And it um, guided me towards... Um, nine months later pursuing a master's degree, a master of science degree to be specific, in clinical and abnormal psychology. So I decided I was gonna take the research route towards um, you know, clarifying more about where things stand in, in the realm of clinical psychology. And then after that, did you go and found your practice right away, or did you need to sort of make money first so that you had a cushion? How did how did you how did you deal with all of that? Well, <laughs> there are some uh, some more chapters in between. I have to admit, I, I went and uh, studied in the UK, and then I got a job over there um, working in a community psychiatry center and. Then I came back to Cyprus. I took on a very interesting position in a research institute. Then I pursued another master's degree. And then ultimately I came back to Cyprus. Um, and no, it did not happen right away. In fact, uh, coming back to Cyprus was a bit of a slap in the face, let's say, because right on my return, uh, things were shaky. Uh, locally in the economy and within, I remember distinctly actually, it was 2013 and I had just the previous day gone for an interview uh, in a position that I was volunteering for when I was a teenager actually. It was a local cancer charity and they were hiring people to work as psychotherapists for um, you know, to be at the disposal of people in in the community, and I was very happy to to get a positive um, reply from them. And then the next day, the local economy crashed, like literally crashed. Um, all bank accounts were uh, th- everything was suspended. And I called them up and they told me, well, you know, we have no idea where things are going. We're most likely not going to be hiring. We're going to be firing. So, you know, looking at where things were, I realized th- there is no way I can, I can make a living 
of this right now the way things are because you know people are going to prioritize their their spending obviously so i thought to myself what am i going to do now how how am i going to get to where i want to be with the general economy being in the gutter and fortunately for cyprus there is a thing that uh, will never die and it's always been here and that's shipping and i ended up um working in a shipping company because it was one of the things that i thought to myself you know this is this is going to get me somewhere this is going to help me build towards what i want to get to and uh, it did it took a while but it did mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's that's quite a turn of events and that's you know it's <laughs> it's interesting how you know something happening in your larger context can so drastically affect your personal context like the whole mm. economy crashing um you know you never would have imagined i i don't think working in a shipping company that's like that's not at all part of the trajectory of your story and yet i'm sure that you you learned a lot from that experience i'd love to hear maybe a couple of of life lessons that you learned or or business lessons that you learned in your time at that company yeah well <laughs> <laughs> One thing I have to say is uh, I remember when I was a kid and uh, my mother used to work in a shipping company uh, many, many moons ago anyway. And uh, my dad was, for the majority of his life, a salesman. And, you know, being being a kid, you always think like, oh, I don't want to do any of that and this and that. Because uh, I was watching them coming home and, you know, the problems and responsibilities of dealing with what they had. And I found myself realizing like 20 years later that, wow, I'm working in sales in a shipping company. <laughs> what a turn of events. And um, I have to admit that I realized what it is truly like to run a business when I was in, this, uh, in the shipping sector because we're talking about huge amounts of money uh, being thrown around to make things happen um to cover the needs of just a, the, a single ship or a fleet and a certain level of planning and being on the go 24/7 um i have to admit it it primed me to be on the go and find solutions very quickly be be you know constantly on my toes running around left and right, uh, taking care of things. And I realized that this was a toolkit. This was giving me a toolkit that would prove to be invaluable when I eventually decided to begin my practice because I, I became much more resilient than I was before and um, mm-hmm. much more mindful of what it's like to run a business because truth be told, you know, you go and study to be a therapist, to be a psychologist, a psychiatrist, whatever, but no one explains the, the, the raw reality of how do you make ends meet? And, you know, we're always talking about mating, making a, uh, um, making it possible to be the best therapist possible, but, you know, you have to let people know that you exist and get them through the door, otherwise, no one will ever use your talents so 
being in a shipping uh, sector with its competitiveness and the drive that is necessary definitely helped me out in that respect, I must say. So when you were making the transition, um, you had left shipping, you were ready to start your practice. What were you most afraid of? Um, most afraid of? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have begun if I didn't believe that I would achieve it. Um, mm. The only thing that had worried me was how long will it take <laughs> until this, until I'm covering all my expenses, you know, covering the bases. And there is a specific um, therapist who I trained under and he told me that in the first year of his practice, he made a grand total of 250 euro the first year and wow. I, yeah and i looked at this guy who was telling me this and he he's brilliant and very successful and i thought to myself wow okay there's always the possibility of that happening <laughs> and i said to myself okay if i can make 250 then uh, at least i passed that milestone fine <laughs> let's do it and yeah. You know, I just I started making up these these small goals and things like that, and I realized that okay, it it's not going to fail. Um, I think my my concern of maybe how to find the resources to um, communicate with you know the the general public here and make it clear that I exist because, you know, I, I work privately. I don't work in the public sector or anything. So I have to take care of all the, these aspects of my business. And eventually I, it just became painfully obvious that, uh, you know, I'm going to have to find a way to, let's say, advertise without advertising. And I think figuring that out was the hardest part of uh, what I've done so far anyway. I don't know. Um, at first, at first, it might have been the economic side of things that worried me, but then it was that finding a way to communicate with the public. I think. So, what do you do to market yourself? Uh, I share information. I share information mm -hmm. with people. I just uh, I I like to write. I always like to write, and you know. Um, spend a lot of time reading and you know sounds pretentious to say it without thinking <laughs> and just um you know I, I realized that sharing some of these realizations or information or you know at the the, the most basic or just ways to do things with people um is a great way to you know inadvertently not only help people but also you know, be on people's minds. Uh, I, I find it very distasteful to, let's say, directly advertise or market myself. So this was a nice, happy medium for me to not only feel like I'm doing something, let's say, that I can stand behind, but also making it something that will attract other people also. So you well, can I, find my Facebook page and right there you'll see exactly what I mean. There's a, a bunch of, you know, 220 character posts because <laughs> that's the, the maximum on Instagram where I try to cram in as much uh, thought-provoking material as possible. 
Well, I think that's a really interesting approach. And I, you know, I find the statistic I always come back to, and I don't know if the numbers are right, but they sound good. It's like 2% of people believe advertising and everybody else believes their friends. So the power of social media and the power of, of sharing your thoughts and your writing in a free way on a free platform, it allows people to begin to, to integrate your tools in their daily life and to integrate your wisdom in their daily life and to think about you every single day when they see what it is that you're offering without having to make any kind of commitment. And that is very powerful, I think. That is exactly spot on, Rachel. I think you you should come over and take my job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, no, I can't do I can't do the therapy part. I can just do the marketing part. Um, that is a brilliant know, so I, brilliant description, though. Spot on. Awesome. I'm mm. I'm so glad. Um, <laughs> I want to hear. You know, you knew that you had the potential to make only two hundred and fifty euro or less in your first year. So what did you do? Did you have a side job? Did you stockpile money and, and, you know, live frugally and have a very aggressive savings plan when you were working for the shipping company? Did you move home with your parents? Did you, you know, move in with a partner and and let them support you? What is it that you did to give yourself, to give yourself the freedom to fail or, or at least to have a rolling start? Yeah. Um, well, something that I very consciously decided on um, a, a long time before I decided to pursue psychotherapy exclusively was to make sure that I, I will never have to, how can I put it, compromise anything uh, or take on anything that I don't want to or in a way that I don't want to or like I said before, you know, have to engage in some kind of uh, marketing approach that doesn't suit me uh, in order to make ends meet. So I decided that the best way to avoid ever needing to get there would be to, again, as you brilliantly said, aggressively stockpile that money. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I was working in shipping because uh, I can tell you I'm, you know, my income there is cons- was considerably more than it is now. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it was not only the jumpstart, but it was also the backbone of my current business. Um, you know, not anymore. Everything is going fine now, but it gave me a sense of um, security to take things at a pace where things would grow properly in a way that uh, would not only make sense, but that it would be within my, my capacity to, to work well as a professional. Because if I had not done that, uh, I don't know how I would have approached things, but I think just you know being a therapist who is worried about money uh, changes the whole dynamic of things. I, I think uh, certain things would be, let's say, tainted or, you know, just off balance. Let me put it that way. For sure. Yeah. For sure. For sure. I often talk about um, that in relation to creativity. You know, there mm. there's nothing that's going to stifle your ability to make art or to be creative or to, to, you know, take time and space to think and plan like worrying and stressing about how you're going to pay your rent 
or how yeah. are you going to feed your children? Um, you know, at that point you're scraping by. And so I think, I think that I really appreciate you sharing that you did save aggressively with your future goals in mind and you didn't just, Oh wow, how nice I'm making this nice income. I'm going to go and spend it all and I'm going to live like I make, like I'm going to make this money forever. It was and I think that there's, <laughs> yes, I was going to say that's a huge temptation. Um, but it was, it, it's good for people to hear that, that, that is not the way to go if you're trying to build something in the future. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I had a um, a boss <laughs> in um, in the distant past, maybe a decade ago, and this this was a guy who had changed his life, uh, his general lifestyle, and the places where he lived a number of times. And I'll never forget um, a prospective graduate student was asking him. You know what? What should I do? Should I pursue this direction or that direction? How am I going to do it? And he directed the conversation in a completely different uh, direction. He said, "Okay, what appeals to you in that job, and what in that job? What kind of lifestyle do you want to have? Because at the end of the day, you're going to be waking up and spending." 8, 10, 12, 15 hours, whatever, doing what it is that you aspire to do. So what kind of lifestyle do you want? What, how do you want to wake up? How do you want to go to bed? What do you want to be doing in between? In a very real sense, not just, you know, I want to practice therapy, but what does it mean, for example, to be a therapist? And it was very conscious when I was, as I said before, uh, as you said before, actually aggressively stockpiling money, I had it in my mind that that's what I want to do. I want to be a therapist and I want to live a specific way because it will make me a better therapist. And that means that right now I have to cut back on my spending, you know, enjoy life nevertheless, but not uh, in a way that would compromise the reason I was there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you hold a lot of space for people in your sessions, and um, I'm curious how you recharge and how you stay inspired and how you sort of compartmentalize or don't the, the, the things that you absorb in your sessions so that you can continue being there for all of your clients and also so that you can stay healthy for yourself. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, well, I think to a certain extent, I take care of that by making sure that, you know, I might be during that hour or those hours, um, when I'm with one of my clients, I am Lawrence, the therapist, but I'm still nevertheless Lawrence, you know, so, um, I don't know how, how to explain that exactly, but it, it doesn't become such a dramatic shift for me when I'm in or out the office where it becomes, uh, you know, an issue of having to completely press the reset button once I'm out the door to become someone else, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, to on a more practical note, um, I, I have realized that the... There's so much um, intimacy 
let's say in in having a very in-depth conversation with someone for or with multiple people for you know six seven eight hours a day um where completely focused every minute where afterwards i give myself the space and the ability and i plan my life in such a way where i do have time to sometimes very simply be alone you know just be by myself and kind of let's say not not meditate in a, in, a, in any kind of sense but just allow myself to do whatever it feels more natural to do in that moment sometimes it's going to the gym to train sometimes it's listening to music playing music whatnot but definitely um you know something that i i realized by spending a lot of time with uh, athletes in sport that resting and recuperation is part of training so in a very similar way um being a therapist means that you have to plan your downtime also on a daily mm -hmm. basis mm-hmm yeah mm-hmm that was a so bit of a vague answer, though. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was a beautiful. It was a. It was a beautiful answer. It was a beautiful answer. Thank you, Rachel. Um, one of the, one of the things, one of the things I love, the most about, what you're doing is that you are putting it out on the internet for people to. Well, you're not like putting your sessions out, but you're you know you're putting your wisdom <laughs> out for for free. And a lot of what you, sometimes what you post is not in a language that I understand. And then I get sad because I want to read it too. <laughs> but a lot of times it's in English. And um, I think that you you share these really digestible pieces of wisdom that people can integrate sort of right mm. now into their daily life. And I'd love to hear um, maybe like three pieces of wisdom, three tools, three reminders, three some things that you can share with our audience here today um, that they can start integrating immediately to feel better. Three things, huh? Hmm. Well, in the spirit of what most naturally comes to mind, I'm going to cut that down to one. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Do it. Um, okay. I mean, this, this, this is a very fundamental thing that I, I notice in... You know, the, just the way that we, we live these days. Uh, in general, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, someone has to have a problem or end up in the therapist's office or whatever that means um, to be doing things in this way. Um, a lot of times, the problems that we face are actually the product of what we're really good at. Not necessarily what our weaknesses. That's the reflex way of looking at things. It's the linear A, if A is B, then B is C way of looking at things. That something is going wrong because I have a weakness somewhere. If we look at it a bit more deeply, it's actually the exact opposite. What we end up bringing into our lives is usually the result of us trying to overreach with what we're really good at and not realizing the cost of uh, doing what we've always been doing, and yet the circumstances may be changing. So a very good question to ask oneself is, what is the cost of doing things this way? 
and what would it cost me to change it? And when I say cost, I mean, you know, emotional consequences or practical consequences, because the way we hold our lives together is a very complicated beast. I mean, it's it's not just, you know, I I support myself by doing this job and I'm married to this person and this. No, everything is has an emotional aspect to it and a huge number of decisions that we don't even, in every moment, in every day, that we don't even acknowledge because we do them so naturally. But that is exactly what I'm getting to. That what is so natural and easy to us might be what is causing the problem. So a person who is very patient and very resilient um, can become a very good therapist, a very good businessman, very good whatever. But who are the people who get burnt out and why do they get burnt out? Because exactly, they're very talented at what they do. And maybe uh, they underestimate the cost that it has on their lives. So something that I frequently ask uh, from my clients, because it's usually the first thing that they, they say is, what should I do about this? Well, based on everything that was said so far, I think it's much more productive instead of trying to think of what more can I add onto this bag of weight that I have on my back? Adding another thing as a solution doesn't really look uh, as the simplest, easiest way to go around things because that's what we need immediately to, um, let's say, get, get some relief. We need something now, and something sustainable, something that ultimately works. So adding more things into our lives as an expectation of I should be doing more of this seems very counterintuitive. That's why I always ask the question, what are you doing now which you could be doing less of? What can you do less of in your life that will have an immediate impact? Because we're mm. talking about you're going 100 miles an hour. Well, let's just go 99. Okay, step one. What can we do less of that will have an immediate impact in the right direction? And, you know, just sitting down and discussing this and, you know, exploring what that could mean come, brings up things that, uh, you know, becomes so clear that we're spending a lot of energy a lot of times on things that are counterproductive to us and... Uh, that was a very long-winded answer for something that I said would be number one thing and just the one thing. But honestly, I think uh, what can we take a step back from is a very, very liberating thought to have. And uh, I don't know. I really hope some of the people listening will put that into action and see how it works because I promise it does. I'm going to do it today. Excellent. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And as, you know... I am a, I am, I am an achiever. I am a person that likes to make really long lists and accomplish everything on them. Um, but yeah, like I, I love that advice. It's, I, I am always looking at things like, what can I add? What can I do differently or more of? And, and I think the better question is, is, is where can you make space? What yeah. can you take off your plate? Exactly. I love that. Yeah. 
So Lawrence, you um, have been doing this for a while now, um, but you know, you, you've got a lot of life ahead of you. I'm curious, do you have any future goals? Do you think about your business in terms of, you know, a 10 year goal or anything like that? I've had a number of things on my mind. Um, you know, I have always wanted to work in some kind of academic capacity, but, uh, you know, I used to imagine that meaning uh, working in research and this and that. And I do have some research projects now that are either running or um, in the process of beginning to run. Um, but I always wanted to teach. And this is a bit distant from, from the whole concept of therapy, but the whole field of psychotherapy and psychology and maybe even philosophy together because they're, they're very close, all these things. Um, the idea of teaching has always been very attractive to me. So if I can get my, my private practice uh, working at a capacity that I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing things are steady or there's steady growth and this and that, and I can um, perhaps schedule things in such a way that I can make some space for teaching, that would be wonderful. Um, in regards to my own private practice uh, per se, you know, just that exclusively, um, you know, I, I would like to get things to the point where, you know, just like we discussed before, um, being on the forefront of people's mind when, when they want to explore these kinds of questions and topics that we discover that we're discussing right now, to already have that audience, thanks to social media and the work that I'm doing, to make it possible for people to just find me. Mm. Sounds a bit vague, I know, but uh, I'm I've felt the dramatic shift of where things were and how things are now thanks to my social media presence and uh, I know that there's a lot of space for that to grow and um, inadvertently I think that will lead to maybe what I said before like teaching or lectures and seminars and things like that um, which you know are also very fulfilling things for me it's something that I used to do in the past and uh, I'm very much looking forward to doing it again in this field. So 10 years down the line, sure. Uh, I would still want to be a therapist. I would also want to be a lecturer. I love it. Do you ever do remote sessions? Like could somebody in California get on your schedule to do you know, a video session? Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, assuming, uh, you know, we <laughs> both find a way to... Uh, tackle this 10 hour difference um, but mm -hmm. you know anything can be tackled just like we're doing right now there's a way to do anything yeah. if you want to um, and yeah ultimately if people feel that they would benefit from um, pursuing a conversation a, a session really with me remotely it's definitely something we can do just communicate with me that's what we do so so I have one final question mm-hmm before we close this up, and I'm I'm curious for you, Lawrence. Yeah. What is the what is the meaning of life? <laughs> what is the meaning of life? Oh, man, this is actually something I think about on a daily basis. I have a million answers to it. <laughs> 
the meaning of life i think the, uh, you know i'll never forget i actually remembered sharing this with you once when we met with uh, your husband drew and um there's a writer his name is uh robert anton wilson he's a bit of an odd odd job but he he wrote some brilliant books and he said life is a conspiracy between you and your friends in the sense of we make up the world we live in we choose who we have in there and at the end of the day that's the only thing that matters and that's the only way i could sum up my meaning of life it's how we relate to people Well, thank you so much for making time at the end of your day. This has been just, you've given me so much to think about. And um, I just really, really appreciate you making time for this. Oh, you're very welcome, Rachel. Thank you very much for thinking of me. It's an honor to be on your show. You've been listening to This Guy's Legit. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Dorsey with editing by Drew Dorsey and original music by Taylor Joshua Rankin. This Guy's Legit is executive produced by Boningold. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe to get the next episode automatically. And if you really like what you heard, leave a review. And follow us on Instagram at This Guy's Legit. <laughs>